This is Alan Gannett, author of The Creative Curve, How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover the smartest ideas behind what's actually working in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in. Just connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. This episode of the Marketing Book Podcast is sponsored by Content Marketing World 2018 in Cleveland this September. I'm going to be there. How about you? Content Marketing World is a wonderful event where you can learn and network with the best and brightest in the content marketing industry, including several authors who have been guests on the Marketing Book Podcast. I'm going to be leading the workshop Industrial Manufacturing, Applying Content Marketing Best Practices to the Challenging Audience of Engineers with my friend and past Marketing Book Podcast guest, Rebecca Geyer, author of Smart Marketing for Engineers, an inbound marketing guide to reaching technical audiences. For details, go to contentmarketingworld.com and for the absolute lowest price when you register, make sure to use the promo code marketingbook and they'll knock $100 off your ticket price. $100. Think about it. That's $100 you can spend buying both of his drinks once you get there and still have money left over. I'll have more details in a few minutes and now on with the show. Today, we welcome Alan Gannett to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his new book, The Creative Curve, How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time, published by Currency. Alan Gannett is the founder and CEO of TrackMaven, a marketing analytics firm whose clients have included Microsoft, Marriott, Saks Fifth Avenue, Home Depot, Honda, and GE. He has been on the 30 under 30 list for both Inc. and Forbes, and interesting fact, He was once a contestant on the game show Wheel of Fortune. Alan, (laughs) congratulations on the creative curve and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks for having me, man. This is going to be fun. And I should disclose that another very interesting fact is that you are the proud owner of one of my very favorite dog breeds, a corgi. (laughs) There's a video you did for your book and the corgi is in it. He is in it. He is. He is. I made him a child actor. He's a child star now. Well, how could you not buy a book <laughs> when there's a beautiful corgi in the in the video? And is that is the corgi also the inspiration for Track Maven's logo? So, okay, I have a confession to tell you, but this has to stay between us and I guess all your listeners. So, <laughs> the company is about five and a half years old, and my company's logo is a cute little corgi cartoon. The dog is only four years old. And so basically, I thought when I started the company, what's like we do all this data and serious stuff. We have like a cute logo. And then and I always wanted a corgi, but I didn't have one. Then it just got weird not having a corgi, but having like a corgi mascot. So it's like, I guess I have to have one. And um, that was my way of talking myself into getting a dog. So That's now I have a very adorable crazy, mischievous four-year-old Corky who happens to look like the logo. So it works. Perfect. And he's named Maven. Yeah. So his name is Maven? 
His name is Maven. It gets weird, okay. Doug. It gets weird. <laughs> okay, good. Well, you're on the right podcast for you know, <laughs> for getting weird. So, Alan Gannett, why did you write this book? Yeah. So, you know, so I've been running this company for about five and a half years, and you know, we work with a lot of marketers at amazing companies, amazing brands, and you know, I'd have these conversations. And at some point, these conversations with marketers, you know, we've been working with them for a while. They trust us. You'd get this sense that, oh, my God, they don't think they're creative. They're like, well, I, you know, I can't come up with an idea like that. I have to hire an agency. I have to do this. I have to do that. And I realized that all these marketers I looked up to had this, like, deep, deep fear and misunderstanding about creativity. Mm-hmm. You know, they view creativity as a static thing, a thing you're either born with or you're not. And I knew just because, you know, I've been a big reader. I've read a lot of autobiographies. And that's like not the, the case. Like the people who we look up to as creative geniuses, that's not their story. Their story isn't one of popping out of the womb with sort of magical creativity. And so that really sparked the idea for a talk. And I was giving the talk and it really was resonating. The talk was basically, you know, showing some examples of how some of these creative geniuses you look up to are actually really the stories of a lot of intentionality. And a lot of hard work. Mm-hmm. And the talk was really resonating. And someone was like, hey, this would be a great book. And I just thought, you know, hey, this would be a great way to like, you know, just get this into more marketers' heads. Like you can, you can be creative. And then as I was working on the book, I realized this isn't just a marketer issue, it's an issue for all creators. So many creators stop before they start because they think they don't have this magical thing that turns out doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Let me just quote from the beginning. You say, What I found was that today's marketers are following the wrong patterns. They tend to use words like innovation, collaboration, and brainstorming. To me, that is really industry speak for a group of people waiting around for a light bulb moment. Like those Mm -hmm. who believe in the inspiration myth, they believe great campaign ideas will simply strike them at the right time. Marketers are unconsciously following the traditional myth of the inspiration theory of creativity in their careers and in their offices. So you say that, and to my great surprise, you don't actually need to take LSD to get inspired or, <laughs> or pray for a moment of blinding inspiration. How can that be? Yeah, so it's really fascinating. So one of the things that I think as people we have a sort of a bias towards is things we can't explain on their face. We tend to go, oh, it's like magical, right? And so inspiration and aha moments are one of these things that there's actually a ton of science around how sudden insight happens. Mm-hmm. It's well studied. It's well documented. There's multiple fields of study that have looked into it, neuroscience, psychology, sociology. And the thing is, these sudden insights we have are really just a type of processing that happens in our right hemisphere. And it happens to be subconscious. That's it. And it happens that that type of processing, the answers only come to us consciously once they're fully formed. Versus our left hemisphere processing, where we do more logical processing, step-by-step, very incremental. That is all conscious. That entire process, like when you're solving a math problem, you know it's happening as you're doing it. Our right hemisphere processing, where we connect more distant and different associations together, that happens subconsciously. And so when it pops into consciousness, it feels like an aha, but... That doesn't mean it's magic. It's just a different form of biology. <laughs> so when Isaac Newton was uh, apocryphally hit on the head with an apple, uh, that wasn't it. He'd been studying physics for, for years, right? For years. And I talk about in the book, one of the things I found that was so fascinating was, you know, when you look at these creatives, 
you, know, you look at J.K. Rowling, for example, there's the famous story of her, you know, being on the train and being hit with the idea for Harry Potter. And people are like, well, like, look, it's so easy for her. And it's like, no, no, no. J.K. Rowling had this like troubled childhood, you know, really stressed out family life. She locked herself in her bedroom, just read hundreds and hundreds of books. In college, she literally had loans and fines or fines owned to the library because she was overdue so many books. Like she had spent years consuming information. And so, yeah, like when she dreams and when she daydreams, her right hemisphere, the ingredients in there, they're all book ideas. They're novels. They're characters. They're, they're story plots. Mm-hmm. So, of course, she daydreams about that and you don't. But that doesn't mean that it's magic. It just means that she has a different set of sort of, you know, working materials to work with. Mm-hmm. Let's just puncture one more time this <laughs> this creative genius notion. Why is this myth so strong and pervasive? Oh my God! So, well, I think you know. So basically, in the book, it's split into two halves. The first half is just debunking this myth, and mm-hmm. I trace the history of the myth from literally the Greeks to present time. And there's sort of there's a few things going on. There's a lot of religion actually intertwined with this myth and sort of whether or not artists are gods or godlike or very far back, they were actually viewed as sort of um, mere craftsmen who would replicate God's work. But over time that evolved into, oh, no, they're actually like creating their own divine work and they're godlike. And eventually, oh, no, they're just gods. And <laughs> there's been this sort of over time as people have had more money, a lot of his economics – We've put more value on art. And so artists have been able to command more attention. And so there's been this sort of myth that like, oh, look, I'm special. I'm different. It's a way you sell your art. And so over time, we've developed in sort of the the common, you know, our common monomyth, so to speak, that, you know, artists are these brilliant, creative people who have these unique and special capabilities and talents that's sort of beyond reproach. Mm-hmm. And that's not true. It's not true. In fact, a lot of the things that, you know, when we look at the sort of creativity myth today, like this idea that a lot of creatives are somewhat sort of odd or neurotic or manic, Mm -hmm. like that, for example, can be traced back to in the 1800s, there was this phase, this whole mad genius phase of books where all these people came out with books that became sort of mainstream sensations, you know, talking about how geniuses were really just, you know, crazy people gone good. And like, and there's all these books and, you know, one of these books, for example, that was really famous, you know, made the point that, you know, going a basically schizophrenic is a one degree off from genius and, you know, you have to be mad and all this stuff. And so, you know, people who are sick tend to become geniuses. So that's why you don't have many geniuses in places that aren't temperate because there's not as much illness there. There's dry heat. Like, it's just like stupid stuff. Mm-hmm. And so basically these things have just been slowly ingrained in us and the media plays into this, right? The media puts, you know, the picture of one person on the cover of a magazine and they play into this idea that, you know, Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or whoever, you know, that is the person. And the reality is like Steve Jobs had Steve Wozniak. He had, you know, over time, hundreds and hundreds of engineers and designers and Johnny Ive and all these people contributing. And so it wasn't just him, but that's a much more convenient story. Mm-hmm. Yes, and having worked at a number of New York City ad agencies, the uh, myth of the creative genius is is uh, is still very much alive <laughs> because many of them thought they were godlike. Not all of them, <laughs> but but many oh, yeah. of them were, almost to the point of you know when you go in his office, don't establish eye contact with him. You know <laughs> that, that sort of thing. But 
And it's how they sold their stuff. Yes, yes. Oh, and so uh, this uh, particularly resonated with me as you you know puncture this uh, this myth. But there was one other thing I wanted to ask you to explain, and that is this this one concept from Malcolm Gladwell's book where they talk about the ten thousand hours. And you were saying you, you you went back and looked into the the actual research, and as I understand it, either he didn't quite get the research right, or it's been misinterpreted because it's not the idea that you have to do something for ten thousand hours to become an expert. It's actually that you need purposeful practice, which is different from quantity of hours, right? So yeah, so so Malcolm Gladwell dramatically misinterpreted or misread the research. So the 10,000 hours principle is based off research by Kay Anders Erickson, who's a scientist who you know really focuses on talent development. And his research showed, and by the way, uh, I interviewed Kay Anders Erickson for my book, and he gave me this quote that I put in the book, which was literally, Malcolm misread my paper. And so- Not to put too fine a point on it. <laughs> yeah, not to put too fine a point on it. But there's basically two things that uh, are wrong with the 10,000 hours principle. So the first is that 10,000 hours is not a magic number. 10,000 hours was the average across skills and across people. Different skills take different amount of time because it depends on how many other people are trying to do that too. So for example, if you want to become a world-class pianist, it takes about 25,000 hours. If you want to become world-class at digit memorization, which now they have tournaments for, it takes about 400 hours because it's newer. There's less people doing it. It's less competitive. So that's one. The second thing is that it's also the average across people. Different people have a different ability to learn things at different rates. So yes, anyone can become a world-class expert at something, but some people might just take a very, very long time. So that's the first major problem. The second major problem, and this is a nuance that's so important that is completely out of outliers, is that it wasn't 10,000 hours on average of practice, which is what Malcolm Gladwell says. It was 10,000 hours of what's called purposeful practice or deliberate practice. And this is a very different type of practice. So the, the best way I can explain it is it's the difference between you've probably driven your car for 10,000 hours. You're not a NASCAR driver. No. Right? The difference is that NASCAR drivers do what's called purposeful practice, which is taking a skill and bringing it down to very, very small increments and working on that. So for example, let's do high speed left turns. That is purposeful practice. And they do that over and over again. It's like how basketball players will do you know, a certain type of dribbling on a certain type of the court as a drill. Because it turns out that our bodies have this sort of proclivity to make us want to go into sort of like automatic mode, where instead of thinking about something, you actually just go into fully automated mode, just do it. That's why you haven't become a better car driver. So if you want to become a better car driver, you have to go back to like when you were first learning and you're very conscious about what you're doing. This is why, for example, if you ever take golf lessons, I don't golf, but like I'm aware of it. Uh, if you take golf lessons, they basically make you practice very, very small things. Like let's just practice on your grip. Let's just practice on certain irons. Let's just practice on this part of your swing mm -hmm. because that's how you actually get better and you get over your sort of bias as a person to go to fully automatic mode. Right. So let's talk about the creative curve. And as it relates to the creative genius, you say the creative genius is really the ability to understand the mechanics of the creative curve and then use it to engineer mainstream success. So what 
explain what the the creative curve is that you the, this bell curve that forms yeah. the, the basis of the book. So one of the things I found was so fascinating when I got into the research for this book. And so for this book, there are sort of three main sort of inputs. One is I interviewed 25 living creative geniuses. So Oscar winners, billionaires, Tony Award winners, Michelin star chefs, super eclectic mix of folks. Two, I read thousands and thousands of pages of peer-reviewed research. And three, I talked to basically every leading academic in the creativity research field that's alive, like all of them. So here's what was super interesting is that there's actually this really, really common pattern you find in studies, which shows that there's this interesting relationship between exposure, that is familiarity, and preference, and you know how much people like something. And what they find is that over and over again, both at the individual level, the group level, and the population level, the more people are exposed to something, the more they like it, but up into a point. Then the more they're exposed to something, they like it less and less. So you can kind of think about this like, you know, maybe a, a Drake song. You know, the first time you hear it, you're like, what is this? Second time you hear it, oh, it's pretty good. The 20th time you hear it, you're like, okay, I'm starting to get bored. The 30th time you hear it, you hear it you're like, I hate this, right? Mm-hmm. Hotline bling, ah. And so basically what they found is, okay, there's this U-shape, this bell-shaped curve. I call it the creative curve relationship between exposure and, and preference. So why is that? Because that's really important. If our job as a marketer, as an entrepreneur, is to create things that people want, understanding that relationship is really important. And so here's what here's the underlying mechanisms. It goes back to evolutionary biology. We have two contradictory urges, two highly contradictory urges. As people, we both crave the familiar and we seek out novelty. And let me explain that. Because they sound like they don't make any sense together. So mm-hmm. we crave the familiar because we're trained that, okay, like, you know, if you're you're a prehistoric cave dweller and you see a new cave, you should be cautious. Like, you could go in there and die. Like, that's dangerous. Versus a cave you've seen before, you go, okay, like, I know, like, what, what's in there. There's probably people I know. Like, you know, I'm familiar with what some of the potential obstacles are. Great. But... You also seek out novelty because your brain is also constantly looking for new sources of energy and reward. So you're constantly looking for, okay, you know, is this piece of fruit I've never seen before? You know, this could be a potentially new food source for me. And so these two things are actually really interesting because together, these two contradictory urges form this really elegant mechanism for our brain to assess things. Because basically what it's doing is saying, okay, if something's too new, it's scary, right? If you see a berry on a on a you know on a bush that is you know looks nothing like a berry you've ever seen before, you should probably not eat it. But if you see a berry that's different than a strawberry but kind of looks like a strawberry, you go, oh, this is probably fine. It's just a weird looking strawberry, right? Mm-hmm. And so our brain has these two contradictory urges to give us this really elegant way to process the world, to actually look at the world and see, okay. What's safe? What's not safe? What's an acceptable risk? And this carries over to marketing. This carries over to the creative curve, which is showing that people like, whether it's a movie, a recipe, a product, whatever it is, people like things that are the right blend of familiar, but with the right amount of novelty. Mm -hmm. They want it to be familiar, but just enough novelty to get them interested. And then once it's so familiar, then they get bored of it. Then they want something that still has that little bit of novelty. And so that's the element of the creative curve. And what the book is about is that I found the creative geniuses I interviewed 
the reason why we do them as creative genius is they're not they're not one hit wonders. They're able to create ideas over and over again, or even as their career, even as the years change, there is a that are at that right point of familiarity and novelty. And that's the magic of creative genius is how do you do that over and over again? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you say being able to balance familiarity and novelty isn't just useful for creating fortunes. It is essential. And it was very interesting where you profiled several uh, entrepreneurs who had just gone from one thing to the next, and they seemed to yeah. know just how to catch the right wave. It's, totally. It seemed magic, but then as I read through the book, it was like your pen and teller uh, revealing <laughs> how they how they did their uh, their own tricks. We're going to take a break here so I can talk about one of my favorite things, single malt scotch. As I mentioned at the top of the show, this episode of the Marketing Book Podcast is sponsored by Content Marketing World 2018. I'm going back this September to Cleveland for this awesome conference, and I'm looking forward to meeting more of you just like I did last year. That was so much fun. I'm going to be doing a workshop with my friend and past Marketing Book Podcast guest, Rebecca Geyer, author of Smart Marketing for Engineers, an inbound marketing guide to reaching technical audiences. The workshop is Industrial Manufacturing, Applying Content Marketing Best Practices to the Challenging Audience of Engineers. If you're a manufacturing marketer and are able to attend, I just want to warn you, when this workshop is over, we may end up having to rush you to the emergency room at the Cleveland Clinic because you are going to be at risk of overdosing on so many awesome practical, actionable marketing insights that are going to grow your manufacturing business and boost your career. To get the absolute lowest price when you register, make sure to use the promo code MARKETINGBOOK and they'll knock another $100 off your ticket price. That's right. That's $100 you can then spend buying both of us drinks once you get there and still have money left over. But enough about that. Let's talk about scotch. If that rock-bottom price to attend Content Marketing World isn't enough incentive, here's one more. When you register using promo code MARKETINGBOOK, there's also a bottle of scotch in it for me from the nice people at Content Marketing World. We're talking win-win here, people. But now let's say you can't attend Content Marketing World and you feel bad about that. Well, you can still send me a bottle of single malt scotch. Seriously. The mailing address is at marketingbookpodcast.com. Do it. But let's say you can attend Content Marketing World and you're thinking, well, Douglas, I like your podcast, but I'm just not yet ready to send you a bottle of scotch. But I would like to show my appreciation for what you're doing here. I've got you covered too. Here's what you do. First, pour yourself a drink. Have two. And then go to iTunes or Apple Podcast, as they call themselves now, and leave a one-sentence review for the Marketing Book Podcast. And then message me on LinkedIn and tell me which one is yours so I can raise a glass and toast your review and your good taste in podcasts. (laughs) And now, back to the show. You say that you ultimately you discovered these four patterns and it was just four, <laughs> so kudos to you, that, that, that <laughs> people use to come up with ideas that are you know, optimized for commercial success. And I was wondering if we could talk, you know, maybe walk through those just a bit. And the first one is, you call it the, the law of, of, of consumption. And I was wondering if you could talk about that and talk about patterns and, and, and the 20% principle. Yeah, great question. So one of the things that was most interesting is when I interviewed these creatives – 
you know, from very different fields, there were these four things that stuck out as all of them did them. They were very consistent. And the one that to me, like I was like really surprised by was, you know, we talk about, you know, creatives and creators as people who are constantly doing, they're constantly creating stuff. You know, they're not the consumers of our culture. They're creating culture. But when I actually interviewed them, not only did they not just spend a lot of time creating, but they spent a lot of time consuming, mm-hmm. a huge amount of time consuming information in their niche. And it wasn't just, you know, I interviewed these people and there was, there was definitely this trend of, okay, you know, at some point early on, they spent, you know, a huge amount of time consuming content. Like J.K. So Rowling, text, you already mentioned. She'd read. J.K. Rowling, yeah. Yeah. Paul McCartney grew up in a musical household, played in a cover band. Um, I interviewed Ted Sarandos from Netflix, and he literally worked as a video store clerk where he decided to watch every single movie in the store. But what's interesting is they all did all this consumption. And this gave them that understanding of, well, what would be familiar, right? What would my audience find some commonalities in? And what's interesting is that it didn't, it didn't stop there. All these creative geniuses, even though they're busy, even though they're successful, they still consume to this day. So I found this thing when I would talk to these creatives. I was like, okay, you know, how much time do you spend you know, consuming information in your field every day? And over and over again, it was like, you know, like three to four hours, four hours, five hours, three hours. You know, over and over again, the same sort of number showed up. Mm-hmm. And so I call it the 20% principle. It's this idea that these creative geniuses still to this day spend 20% of their waking hours consuming information, consuming information in their vertical. And this is so important because it serves us two purposes. One, it gives us that understanding of familiarity over time. So we actually don't you know, get stale. We learn what our audience is experiencing. So we're able to keep creating that little bit of novelty that's essential. And then two, it gives our right hemisphere the raw ingredients for aha moments. You need to have that underlying knowledge base to actually connect ideas. So consumption is very critical because it gives you those ideas, those concepts, those memories for you to connect together and form new interesting ideas. Mm -hmm. So when I hear about somebody who's writing a book who I know, (laughs) I happen to know, doesn't really read them. (laughs) <laughs> I sense there's a, there's going to be a problem there. It, totally. I, it's this person I know of who likes the uh, concept of being an author but doesn't actually want to, you know, write the book. But 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 anyway, but it's like the you talk about chefs who will visit other chefs. They'll go to restaurants. Yeah. They're eating out all the time and they're they're studying up on ingredients and suppliers and all that type of thing. Or my I mean, chefs are amazing. They go to farms. They they yes. they constantly try and try to a lot of them have gardens. Like they're constantly like they're constantly consuming information about new flavors, new taste profiles, new techniques. Mhm. Yeah. So uh, you say uh, there's one quote from the book where you say if your goal is to achieve mainstream success, your first step is to immerse yourself in the field you're interested in, exposing yourself to and consuming as much as possible. So let's go to the next one, the law of imitation and Alan Gannett, what do internet memes like angry cat <laughs> have to do with imitation? Why why is that why was that picked? to explain this law. <laughs> so, yeah, so in the book, I, I, I do a little bit of a profile of Grumpy Cat, which is one of the most famous oh, I'm sorry, Grumpy Cat. Come on. It's okay. He's not offended. Don't I, worry. He's I've just, just Grumpy. I've ju- yes, but I've just embarrassed my two kids. So <laughs> please, go ahead. And the thing which is really interesting about memes is that they have a clear structure. 
right? They have a structure of how does the joke set up? So a grumpy cat meme, it's a you know picture of this cute grumpy cat. The first line is something kind of basic, like, you know, I love math. And the second line is something grumpy, like they make people, it makes people cry. <laughs> and so the reason why memes are so interesting when you study the topic of creativity is that they are pre-built to hit that sweet spot of the creative curve because it has a baseline. There's something familiar. And then you as the creator add your little novel twist. So if you're the audience, you're already in on the joke, you're comfortable with it, it's familiar, you know what's going on. And so it's very easy to create something funny. And so the reason why memes have proliferated is that they're a little sort of like hack in a box. And so I use memes to, to tell the story because structure is so important if you're looking to create something that is familiar with the right level of novelty. And one of the ways to really learn that structure, it turns out, ironically, for a you know, when you think about creativity, you think about originality, is imitation. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just that these creative geniuses I talked to were consuming content, but it's also they were consuming content in a different way. They were consuming content through this very sort of active type of, you know, I'd call it almost, you know, interactive imitation, where they're going through and they're they're writing out outlines of novels. You know, how is this novel set up? How does it start? You know, what are the different main pieces of the story plot? Kurt Vonnegut wrote his master's thesis on the emotional arc of stories. And he actually mapped out the arc of different stories to see, you know, what were the common patterns? Like this is how these great creatives learn is they actually focus on learning the structure first mm -hmm. because by learning the structure that actually gives you this huge step up where now you understand like what is going to be that familiar successful baseline. Mm -hmm. And so that I found was just so, so interesting because like, I think some people imitation is like this dirty word. Oh yeah. But it, it's really like, and it was actually funny, you know, Kanye West recently tweeted out something and I know this is going to be aired later, but Kanye West recently just tweeted out this tweet about how, you know, great artists take an update. I thought that was such a great, great way to say it because that is really so important. Like if we have to create things that are familiar with a twist of novelty, imitation is critical, critical. I'm not saying you should plagiarize, but you should imitate the structure. You should imitate the structure. Right. You say all culture is made up of remixes. And this is the second book quite recently I've read that talks about the Franklin method, how Ben Franklin learned to write. And the other time I read about that was in your friend Joe Lazowska's book with Shane Snow about the storytelling edge. Can you explain, just before we move on, how Franklin understood this law of imitation? Yeah, so Ben Franklin talks in his autobiography, and he's really funny about it. Like he's like, you know, because his autobiography is so well written, and so he has this chapter about how he like used to be a terrible writer, mm -hmm. and so what he did is, and it worried his, it worried his father that he was such. His a bad father writer. shamed him over this. Yeah, his right. father shamed him over this. He was eighteen, and he was like, he was just horrified, and so what he did was he took an article from one of his favorite newspapers, and he took it and he did two things. First, he outlined it, you know, did start with, you know, what part of the persuasive argument did start with? Was there quotes? How did this work through? And then he went back to it and rewrote the article based on that outline. So he could actually work on the sentences, but already having the structure that would work, the structure that would be effective. Then the next thing he did, you know, make it even harder is he took the outline, he shuffled it up, and then he went back and actually, okay, said, how do I restructure the actual whole article? How do I outline it? 
And then once he did that, then he rewrote it. And so he was very intentionally learning the structure of something he knew was effective. And from there, that's how he built, that's how he focused on his skill. And so, you know, for me, I experienced this obviously in writing a book. I've read, I've been a big business book reader for years. And so I knew, you know, what were the things I liked and didn't like about um, business books? And I knew the structures that worked. And I was very intentional about looking at them and, you know, seeing how different authors did things and taking the things I liked and, you know, adding some new things and taking some things I didn't like. And without that, without that, you know, I would have just been sort of aimlessly wandering. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the the third law you talk about, you say that ignoring the social aspect of creativity has just dire consequences and that building the right type of community might be the most crucial part of the creative process. Explain why. Yeah, so you know, a big part of the creative curve is that familiarity is so important, right? Exposing people to things. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because in order to do that, like a lot of people are involved. People have to see it. It has to reach them. There's distribution. There's all these different elements. And so since there's such a social phenomenon going on when it comes to creativity, part of this is that you need to actually involve a lot of people. And so the myth of creativity is that, you know, there's this one person and they're climbing up this hill and there's a boulder on their back. But the reality is there's all these people involved. And so I outline in the book the different people involved. And I'll give you just a kind of a high level of some of them. But, for example, one of the ones I think is the most important is I split out the role of a mentor into two different roles. Because I found that it can actually be in two different roles. The first is a master teacher. And this is someone who helps you along that journey of learning that structure, learning those successful tactics, who helps you with your deliberate practice, who helps you learn what to imitate, this is a totally important person. But the other person, the other role, which sometimes is combined in a mentor, but I think it's often actually split, is that of a promoter. Since creativity relies on other people perceiving your content as creative, as actually seeing it, you need people to help you with that. You need people to help lend you social credibility. You need people to let you tap into distribution networks. And so the idea of a promoter, that's someone who actually is already successful. They're already out there, they can lend you their name. So with a startup, this is like your board of advisors, for example. This is a promoter. These are people who are lending you their name. In Hollywood, there's sort of an apprentice model. So you literally are, you know, working with someone bigger than you. And if they like you, they're going to help you because someone helped them and they're going to help get you under projects and, you know, literally write intros for you and do all this sort of thing. And so promoters are actually really important. You see this in music, obviously. I think there's a really interesting example of just, you know, tours, you know, Taylor Swift opened for Rascal Flatts back before she became famous. And then, you know, more recently, Sean Mendez opened for Taylor Swift and then he became famous. Now people are opening for him. And you know, this is a way of sort of lending credibility to an up and coming act. But it also works the other way where where that bigger act actually benefits from being around that yes. newer person. Yes, so interesting. So one of the things I talk about is there's a really fascinating study in the book that says that some of the most effective teams are teams of people who are very much part of the establishment and another person who's very much part of the fringe. Because the people who are more senior, you go, well, what's in it for them? Well, since novelty is a critical part of effective creativity, you need new ideas. You need those fresh perspectives. So the really successful established people, they know this. They're conscious of this. In fact, it was interesting. Some of these you know, creative geniuses I interviewed 
they're really comfortable and actually very focused on like making sure they interact with people younger than them because they know to stay fresh to understand mm-hmm. what's out there they have to be getting those ideas so it actually it actually is a two-way relationship yeah that was very uh, interesting and i had not had not realized uh, how much the 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 more senior person benefits and how they might be even more motivated to have the newer people around them totally yeah. So the last one I thought was oh, so applicable to to marketing for a variety of reasons, but that was the law of iterations. And it, you talk about how the big thing about this law of iterations is that you've got to listen to your audience. Can you talk about that law and why? I mean, you talk about Ben and Jerry's and you talk about the movie industry. They're obsessed with iterating hand in hand with their audience. Yeah. So, you know, since so much of the creative curve is about getting your idea or that product to be in that sweet spot, well, the people who decide that ultimately is your audience. So, so much of effective creative processes is around listening to your audience and it's often through data. And so one of the things I thought was so interesting was I spent a day with the flavor team at Ben and Jerry's, which is like, Oh my God. Like I got so fat that day. Mm-hmm. And so there's like ice cream everywhere. It smells like fresh ice cream, which if you've never smelled fresh ice cream, like smells amazing. And so I'm spending the day with them and they're talking to me about their process. And it's interesting, you know, they consume, they literally spend, you know, all year they go on things called trend tracks where they go around the country just to like try new flavors, new restaurants, new bars, new cocktails to see what, you know, what's out there. Then they read all these magazines, they do all this stuff. So they consume all this information. Then they come up with a list of 200 flavor ideas. And they take that list and they're not, it's interesting is they're not saying, oh, I love this one, let's go do it, right? It's not the sort of the, the lone genius going off and doing this magic, you know, mad magic thing. No, instead, they email a survey. They send a survey to their customers. They have about 750,000 people in their email list. And they ask two questions. One, how unique is this flavor? And two, how likely are you to buy? And what's really interesting about this is basically asking, well, how familiar is this and how novel is it? Mm -hmm. Because if they just asked how likely are you to buy, they'd have an entire brand of cookies and caramel flavors because that's what people would say. So what they're actually looking for are ideas that are the right balance. It actually doesn't have to score perfectly on how likely are you to buy. They want things that are the right balance of unique and commercially viable because that's where real creative ideas happen. And so they take that list and only from there do they actually start creating test flavors. They create about 15 test flavors and then they actually try giving it to people. They might do focus groups. They do all these different things. And then they actually create the final run of these. And then in the factory, they sometimes learn, oh, this ingredient actually doesn't work well when it's packaged. And so this process that you might from the outside go, oh, well, you know, it's just some brilliant person doing this and like goofing around the kitchen. <laughs> Coming up with the idea and shipping it. Yeah, it's like this highly iterative, highly iterative process. And I think in startup land, this has sort of become more comfortable, like the idea of lean startup, which is basically this. But people don't realize like, you know, the books, for example, you're on a podcast about books. You know, my name's on the cover, but I had a research assistant. I had an editor. I had a copy editor. I had 15 external readers. I had my agent read it. So like the version of the book you're reading and even the version that Doug read was an early copy. There's, I mean, so much iterations that go on to get it to where it needs to be. It's not just, you know, I went off into a cabin and just wrote this book and said, okay, I'm done. 
And so to me, that was one of the really fascinating parts of seeing all these creative geniuses up close is that, you know, again, people think, oh, for some people, it's just so easy. It just flows from them. You know, Mozart would just compose music in his head. Well, it turns out the whole thing about Mozart composing, composing music in his head was literally made up. A music journalist in the 1800s forged a letter that he claimed was from Mozart that claimed that. In fact, Mozart was highly iterative. He literally, like, he, you can find in archives all these drafts he did and all the edits that were all over them. Like, you know, this is not this is not how the world really works. Yeah, see, fake news is not a new phenomenon. Yeah, fake news around for a while. <laughs> that, that publisher made that whole story up just to sell uh, <laughs> sell more magazines. Alan, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Oh, I think the one thing is that I'm not saying that it's easy. That's really important. In fact, I think that the inspiration myth of creativity, I think people use that as an excuse. I think we tell ourselves, well, it's not easy for me, so like, I don't have to try. Yes. I can just, you know, oh, I'm not creative. Mm-hmm. And I that's calling it short. I think anyone out there, the science shows us, and I explain this in the book, the science shows us that we all have the same creative potential. It's what you do with your time. And so the book is not saying, oh, here's these four steps. It's easy. Go do it. No, no. The book is saying, here's these four steps. It's really, really, really hard. But there are steps. And if you're up for the challenge, if you want to do it, you can do it. But you have to shift your mindset. Yes. You know, it, your comment reminds me of like a student who says, oh, I, I'm, I'm just not a math person. No. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody can be good at math. Yes. It's, it's just a lot of work. Well, this is my favorite thing. It's like, you know, one of my friends when I was talking about the book was like, well, I'm not a dancer. And I was like, have you ever taken dance lessons? And he was like, no. And one of the things, just to leave you with this, that's really fun, if you ever want to get inspired, for any of you who claim, well, you know, I hear you, Alan, but like, ah, I have a terrible voice. I can never be a singer. Here's my challenge to you. Go on YouTube, search voice lessons before and after. There are literally, there's a whole genre of YouTube videos of people just talking about like, singing and then a year later after a year of voice lessons and it's amazing it's amazing wow yeah and so that's my that's my that's my homework <laughs> okay great i will do that because you talked about a painter in the book who didn't know how to paint and then he became a painter it was just it really was unbelievable yeah. uh, so alan what you've talked about a few but what books have been the big inspiration in your work and in career yeah, so I mean, I love some of the classics, right? Like uh, Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People, I think is amazing. Ben Horowitz, um, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, I think is a great practical business entrepreneurship book that's highly conversational and fun and interesting. Um, I'd say th- those two. And then I just finished Conspiracy uh, by Ryan Holiday, which was great. And so if any of you are interested in the Gawker, you know, Peter Thiel phenomenon, that's just an amazing behind the scenes tale of that. Yeah, I have not read that one, but Ryan Holiday is one of those authors where you just like Daniel Pink. <laughs> just, yeah. go ahead and, just go ahead and buy his books because you know yeah, just every just single they'll be good. <laughs> they're all going to be good. Yeah. So, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading or seeing come out? Yeah, I'm actually I'm um, a couple things. So I just read When by Daniel Pink, which was great, and then I'm reading right now New Power, which is all about in a participatory culture, how to sort of get heard. And it's, it's wonderful. So I would definitely, it's, it's, it's meant as a book for sort of activists, but it has a lot of marketing applications. So I would definitely check that out. Oh, terrific. Terrific. Yeah. We'll make sure to include links to those in your episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And how best can listeners learn more about you and your book? So 
for the book, you can go to thecreativecurve.com. You can watch the book trailer, see my dog. You know, there's some reviews, all that kind of good stuff. And then for me, check out my website. It's Alan, A-L-L-E-N dot X-Y-Z. And you can subscribe to my newsletter, social links, you know, read my articles, all that good stuff. And also on Twitter, your Twitter handle is Alan. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yeah. And on Instagram and Facebook too. So feel free to follow me. So it's Alan. And uh, so if you're on the listeners on Twitter, tweet at Alan to thank him for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. I'm Marketing Book if you want to add me to the conversation. And we'll include a link to your uh, LinkedIn profile. And for the listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to this show on your podcast player like iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play Music, all these links can be found by going to this episode on your podcast player and clicking on the show notes link. Creative success, in fact, is learnable, whether you're a starving artist or the head of an advertising firm. And this is where I worry. The fact that there's a pattern out there does not mean it's easy. In fact, mastering the creative curve can take years. In Your Hands is not a book telling you that with minimal effort, you can be the next Mozart or Picasso, Elon Musk, or J.K. Rowling. No, this is a book that tells you that if you choose to dedicate your life to creativity, there is a path and a set of key considerations you need to bear in mind and need to do to make success happen. The name of the book is The Creative Curve, How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time. The author is Alan Gannett. Alan, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks, Doug. You're the best. And that closes the book on episode 178 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor, Content Marketing World 2018. To support the Marketing Book Podcast and get the absolute lowest price on attending, go to contentmarketingworld.com and use promo code MARKETINGBOOK. I'll also have a link to Content Marketing World at marketingbookpodcast.com. And please join us next time as we welcome Joel Kahn back to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his new book, The Fun Formula, how curiosity, risk-taking, and serendipity can revolutionize how you work. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Oh, my gosh. Fire alarm going off? You're kidding. Dude, this is hysterical. It literally went on at 11.02. It's like a real fire alarm. Can you hear it? (laughs) Yeah. Dude, this is ridiculous. I should probably go outside. This seems like a real fire. (laughs) Doug, this is so funny. Okay, let me go not die. All right. (laughs) Thanks. Bye. Bye. I'll be back.